Chapter 12 of Tales from Ariosto by Joseph Shield Nicholson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. Tales from Ariosto by Joseph Shield Nicholson. Chapter 12 Rogero and Leo and Bradamant. The fight in Lipadusa had been preceded by another attempt to put an end to the war between the Christians and Saracens by a single combat of chosen champions, and the combat arose in this manner. Agramant, after the failure of his attack on Paris, had retreated to the sea at Arles, and was in doubt whether to risk another battle or to set sail for his own country for news had been brought that Astolfo with an army of Nubians was threatening to march on Biserta, and an urgent summons was sent to Agramant to return to defend his own kingdom instead of trying to conquer the kingdom of another. But his ally, Marsilio, king of Spain, was afraid that if Agramant retired to Africa, he would be left alone to bear the onslaught of the Christians, and he strongly opposed the retreat. The old king Sobrino, the wisest of the councillors of Agramant, and who first of all had opposed the invasion of France, now opposed the selfish advice of Marsilio, and showed the urgent need of crossing to Africa, but at the same time he was as jealous as Agramant himself of the honour of his king. To desert Marsilio was against his honour. To sue to Charles for peace was against his honour but to fight another general battle was destruction. In these straits, he urged the king to challenge Charles to put the war to the arbitrament of a single combat between two champions, one from each side, and if Ruggiero were chosen as the champion of the Saracens, he assured the king that theirs would be the victory. The choice of Ruggiero was the more natural because he had killed Mandricardo in single combat, and the other two, namely Rodomont and Gradasso, on whom the choice might have fallen, had gone away. Rodomont, after his rejection by Doralis in favour of Mandricardo, had left the Saracen camp in a storm of rage, hurling execrations against God and woman. And whilst Agramant was in sore straits, Rodomont was keeping his bridge in honour of Isabella in order to get trophies for her tomb and Gradasso, having got his heart's desire in horse and sword, was on his way back to Sericán. In the meantime, Marfisa, the sister of Ruggiero, and unsurpassed in valour and prowess by any knight, had found out that her parents had been Christian, and had been done to death by the kinsmen of Agramant. As soon as she knew, she had gone over to Charlemagne, and had been received by him with great honour, and had been baptised by Archbishop Turpin in the presence of the whole court with splendid ceremonial. For the first time in her life, Marfisa had bent the knee to mortal man, for to no other king, not even to Agramant, had she owed allegiance, but had always gloried in her independence. Now she vowed to Charles that she would return to the east and bring all Asia under the Christian faith. Marfisa made the closest friendship with Bradamant, and was delighted to find that she was betrothed 
to her own brother Rogiero. The two maiden knights exacted a promise from Rogiero that he, too, would leave Agramant and become a Christian as soon as he could find a fitting occasion. But so keen was his sense of honour that he would not leave Agramant when fortune was against him, and in his king's distress he kept by his side. When Agramant sent his challenge to Charles, it was promptly accepted, and to Rinaldo was entrusted the fortune of the Christians, and with the utmost joy and confidence he made ready for the battle. Rogero, the chosen of the Saracens, was in a very different plight. He had promised Bradamant, Rinaldo's sister, to ask her hand in marriage as soon as he had been baptised a Christian and surmounted, as they thought, the only obstacle. If he should kill Rinaldo in battle, then Bradamant was lost to him for ever. He would prefer his own death, but his life was not his own to throw away when he was fighting for his king as chosen champion, and with a heavy heart he prepared for the duel. The combat was ushered in by the most solemn ceremonials. Between the two armies a large space was cleared, and in the forefront of the Christian army Charles had sworn by the Gospels and all the ritual of the Christian faith that he would abide by the issue of the combat, and if Rinaldo was beaten would make a lasting peace and pay tribute to Agramant. And on the other side, Agramant had sworn on the Koran and by Mohammed that he would abide by the issue of the combat, and if his champion failed, would pay tribute to Charles. And each of the kings had also sworn in no manner to interfere with the course of the fight, and on their part each of the two champions, Rinaldo and Rogiero, had sworn that in case of any interference he would transfer his allegiance to the other side. If Agramant or any of the Saracens interfered, then Rogiero would become forthwith a vassal of Charles, and if the Christians disturbed the combat, then Rinaldo vowed he would become vassal to Agramant. And in the course of the combat, as is told in another story, Agramant, being in fear that his champion would be worsted, and being deluded into the belief that Rodomont had returned to his succour, broke his oath, and attacked the Christians. And as soon as they saw that the peace was disturbed, the two champions stopped their own fight. But not knowing to which side the breach of the stipulations was due, they took no part in the general battle until they should learn with whom lay the fault. It was not long before Ruggiero discovered that it was the Saracen king who had broken his oath. And according to his own solemn vow, he ought straightway to have gone over to Charles. And apart from his solemn vow, he had the strongest reasons for leaving the Saracens. It seemed as if God had opened to him the way to become a Christian and to redeem his promises to his sister and to his betrothed. But when he saw that the general battle had turned against the Saracens, and it was mainly through the prowess of the two maiden knights, he found that he could not bring himself to desert his beaten king. Loyalty to his king mastered every other feeling. In the conflict of duties, the weaker side in the matter of right conquered, simply because it was also the weaker side in the matter of strength. Rogiero, urged by his chivalry, 
twisted his conscience into the belief that he had no right to make the vow he had made with Rinaldo, that in no case ought he to have vowed to desert his king. To Marfisa and to Bradamant he had always said he would find some honourable mode of parting, and until such were found he would not leave Agramant. And now it seemed to him that if he took advantage of the rout of the Saracens to join the Christians and to complete his marriage with Bradamant, he would seem to all men to smirch his own honour to gain his own pleasure. And being thus determined, after the great battle, he took ship to follow his defeated king over the seas to Africa. It was in the storm that drove Gradasso and Agramant to Lipadusa that Rogero alone escaped with his life from the vessel that later on was borne unguided to the sands of Biserta, as told in another place. Rogero had saved his life only by strong swimming, and as he swam, his mind recovered its proper balance and his conscience the proper touch of honour. In the face of death, for he never thought to survive the struggle with the waves, his solemn vow before the combat seemed now of overpowering strength. It seemed now to him that God had prepared the way for him to leave his pagan allies and become a Christian, that God had given him the choice and he had refused. And then, in the bitterness of approaching death, he thought of his lost Bradamant, and in the depths of despair he sent up to God a broken-hearted prayer that if this time he were saved from death, he would ever after serve Christ as his supreme Lord and Master. And his prayer was heard, and on the rocky islet that had threatened the ship with destruction, he made a landing, and with his last remnant of strength, he climbed up the rocks. At first he feared that he had only changed the manner of his death, and had only escaped from the sea to die of thirst and hunger, but there came down to him a holy man, who for many years had lived on this islet a life of prayer. And he took Rogero to his cell, and told him how he had been forewarned of his coming, and forewarned also of his coming fate. And he showed to him the error of his ways, and he cried to him in reproof, Saul, Saul, and afterwards baptised him in the Christian faith. And Rogero remained with the holy man on the island during the time that Biserta was besieged, and the great fight of three against three was fought in Lipadusa. Now, after Orlando had finished the ordering of the tomb for Brandimarte in Sicily, he set sail for France with Rinaldo and the wounded Oliver and Sobrino. And on the voyage, the pilot of the vessel said to Orlando, that on a little island that lay nearly in their course was a holy hermit who had the power of curing whomsoever he would of wounds or diseases. And Orlando bade him steer for the islet, and they landed, and there they found Rogero, though none knew him except Sobrino, for Rinaldo had only seen him in battle in full armour with visor down. And the holy man, by the aid of God and his simples, cured the wounded foot of Oliver, and the old King Sobrino, 
who was already almost persuaded to be a Christian by the death of Agramant and the courtesy of Orlando, now, when he saw the miracle done on Oliver, became quite converted to the true faith, and he, too, was healed of his wounds. And when Orlando and the other paladins found that the other guest was Ruggiero, and that he had become a Christian, their joy knew no bounds, and most of all Rinaldo rejoiced, because he was told by the hermit of Ruggiero's love for his sister Bradamant. And under the guidance of the man of God, and with Orlando and Oliver as willing witnesses, Rinaldo made promise of Bradamant's hand to Ruggiero, and greatly all rejoiced at the prospect of so noble a union. At length they set sail for France in the full confidence that the betrothal would be confirmed with the utmost readiness by the Emperor Charles and the parents of Bradamant and Rinaldo, Prince Amon of Montalbano and Beatrix. Charles had already received news of the fight in Lipadusa and of its outcome, and he had heard also much of Ruggiero from Marfisa, his sister. To pay fitting honour to his paladins, who had been the mainstay of his empire, he sent the noblest of the kingdom to meet them on the banks of the Seine, and when they came near to the city walls, he himself went out to meet them, with a noble company of kings and dukes, and with his consort attended by beautiful ladies in rich attire. The joyous emperor and his paladins, and his nobles, and all the common people, gave welcome to Orlando and the others, and when the greetings had been exchanged of friends and relatives, Orlando, Rinaldo, and Oliver presented Ruggiero to the emperor, and they told him how he was the son of Ruggiero of Risa, and of valour equal to his father's, as well the Christian army had proved in battle. And then came forward Marfisa and Bradamant to welcome Ruggiero, and Marfisa kissed him with her lips, and Bradamant with her looks. The emperor made Ruggiero again mount his horse, for he had dismounted to do reverence to the king, and ride by his side. With triumphal pomp and gorgeous festival, they returned together to the city, and the city was all green with leaves and garlands, and the streets were all covered with draperies, and from the windows and balconies, ladies and damsels showered down flowers on the conquerors and here and there they passed under triumphal arches, and saw great pictures that showed the ruins of Biserta a prey to the flames. And here and there were stages, with living plays and living pictures, and at every coin of vantage was written up, To the liberators of the empire! And to the sound of trumpet and fife, and all sorts of musical harmonies, and with laughter and plaudits, and with shouts of jubilation and goodwill from the crowded masses of the populace, the great emperor and his baronage alighted at the palace, and for many days the goodly company held high festival, with tournaments and mimes and comedies and dances and banquets. In the midst of these festivities it chanced one day that Rinaldo told his father, Prince Amon, how he had promised Bradamant to Ruggiero in the presence of Orlando and Oliver, and how they thought as he did, that in valour and nobility of blood no alliance could be more fitting, 
but Amon heard his son with bitter anger that he should have dared without his consent to promise his sister in marriage. And he told him how he designed that she should become the wife of Leo, the son of the Greek emperor Constantine, and by no means of this Ruggiero, who not only was no king but had nothing in the world, and did not seem to know that without riches little account is taken of nobility and less of valour. But much more grieved than Amon was his wife Beatrix, and much she blamed the presumption of her son, and in public and in private she denied that ever Ruggiero should marry her daughter, and with all her might she designed to make her the Empress of the East. But Rinaldo obstinately refused to lessen his promise by one iota, and the mother, who fully believed that Bradamant was of her own mind, said to her, that rather than be the wife of a poor cavalier, it would be better to be dead, and that if she bore with this insult from her brother, never again would she be received as her mother's daughter, and she bade her stand firm and not be forced by Rinaldo. Bradamant, be it remembered, had been trained up from childhood to feats of arms, and was accounted by Charles himself as the equal of any of his paladins, even her brother Rinaldo. All alone she had been used to ride like any errant knight in quest of adventures, and as free from fear as if escorted by a thousand horse. It was on the battlefield that she had first met Ruggiero, and their love had been knit together in fighting side by side. She had never loved before, and she loved Ruggiero with the extremity of passion. And yet this Bradamant, in the presence of her mother, stood silent, and said not a word in reply to her scornful abuse of her lover, because, strange as it seems in these days, she held her mother, simply because she was her mother, in such reverence and respect that she could not even think of disobedience. And yet, on the other hand, she was so loyal to truth and to love that she could not say one word of assent. She could only sigh and say nothing. But when she found herself alone, she gave way to a passion of grief and lamentation, and her mind was tossed this way and that, with doubts and perplexities. Honour to her parents fought with love for Ruggiero. If her parents disapproved, she had on her side her brother Rinaldo, the man of their house of the highest renown, and she had the approval of Orlando their cousin, the greatest of all the paladins, and she herself had drawn Ruggiero to the Christian faith, and her brother had betrothed her before the highest witnesses, whilst as yet the betrothal to the Greek was only in the air. And her last word to her heart was that she ought not to break her promise to Ruggiero, which had been made into a solemn betrothal by Rinaldo. And if Bradamant was troubled, no less also was Ruggiero, for he had heard through the city the rumour of the suit of the son of the Eastern Emperor, and well he knew that it was only in riches he himself was deemed of lesser worth. In every other good that man may get by gift from nature, or by his own labour, he knew that none surpassed him, not in bodily form or strength, or in greatness of heart, or in kingly bearing, well he knew his own worth, 
and to no man in the world would he give way in body or soul. Only in lands and treasure was he lacking. Only, alas, in those things that the common crowd thinks of the utmost value. But the more he thought, the more was he troubled, and in the midst of his trouble sprang up the fear that Bradamant might be attracted by this imperial marriage, and might rather obey her father than remember her troth plighted with him. The rumour of Rogero's fears at last reached Bradamant herself, and in pity of her lover she sent to him by a faithful maiden a message. Such as I was to you, so will I be till death, and beyond death if such a thing can be. Let love be kind to me or cruel. Let fortune smile on me or fortune frown. Immovable as a rock shall stand my faith, though buffeted on every side by wind and wave. I have not changed in calm or storm, nor ever shall through all eternity. Sooner shall a leaden chisel fashion an image out of adamant than any blow of fortune change my faith. Sooner shall the mountain torrent run back to the mountain top than my thoughts of you go back on their path. Yours is the lordship over me, and never to a new prince was deeper fealty sworn, and never did king or emperor have a more secure possession than you hold of the fortress of my soul. It shall yield to no assault, not to riches, nor to nobility, nor to crown imperial, nor to fickle change of fancy. Do not fear that ever on my heart shall be engraved any face but yours, and not from a hundred blows shall your image take one single mark. Force may shatter the precious stone, and break in pieces ivory or marble, but force cannot mould them to new shapes, and so may love break my heart, but never fasten on it the image of another. And many more words she sent by her messenger, but no sooner was the message given than a new peril arose. For Bradamant on a sudden passed from words to deeds, and with undaunted courage, and putting aside all respect of persons, she presented herself before King Charles and said, Sire, if ever I wrought for your majesty any deed that seemed good in your sight, may you be pleased to grant me a boon? And before I put it in words, promise me on your kingly faith to grant me the favour, and what I ask shall be just and fair. Noble lady, replied the king, your valour merits whatever boon you may ask, and I swear to grant you your request to the half of my kingdom. The boon I ask, said the maiden knight, is that never shall a husband be given to me who does not first show that he can conquer me in fight. Whosoever shall wish to win me must prove me with lance or sword, and if he is beaten, let him mate with another. And the emperor with joyous look said her request was worthy of her high renown, and that she might be well assured of his promise. And the prayer and the grant were made in open court, and the same day the news was told to Amon and Beatrix. And her parents were mightily enraged with their daughter, for well they knew that her design was to beat away Leo, the son of the emperor, and give herself to Ruggiero. 
and as quickly as they might they laid a snare and took her away from the court and brought her to a stronghold lately given by charles to amon and here they kept her prisoner with the intent to send her to the east so that willing or unwilling she should wed leo and put aside rogero the valorous bradamant who was as maidenly as knightly never tried to escape though the gates of the fortress were open to her but her heart was fixed to suffer any durance or torture rather than give up rogero but rinaldo who saw that by the guile of amon his sister had been taken out of his hand and that he could no longer give her to rogero as he had promised was bitterly vexed and in his angry words passed the bounds of filial honour but little cared amon for words and was bent on having his will with his daughter when rogero heard of these things he feared that he would lose his lady and that she would be forced to wed leo if leo were allowed to live and without saying a word to any one he determined that leo should die and that at the same time he would take from his father life and throne he put on the armour which first had been hector's and had been restored to rogero by orlando after the fight in lipadusa and he saddled his good horse frontino but he changed his plume and shield and surcoat and instead of a silver eagle he used for device a white unicorn of his squires he chose one he deemed most faithful and he enjoined him in no place and to no man to say that he was rogero and riding beyond the rhine and through austria and hungary he came at last down the right bank of the danube in sight of belgrade where the save flows into the danube and turns with it to the sea in fuller volume rogero saw a great people under the imperial flag for constantine had designed to win back from the bulgarians the city they had captured from him and the emperor was there in person and with him was his son leo the bulgarian army lay opposite outstretched from the hill down to the river save and across this river the greeks were trying to throw a bridge of boats and the bulgars were fighting against them when rogero came in sight the greeks under their emperor were four to one in number and first of all they made a feint with their boats to cross the river to the city but meanwhile leo had been sent by a wide circuit far to the west and had thrown a bridge across the river and with foot and horse not less than twenty thousand had passed along the riverside and attacked the bulgarians in flank and as soon as the emperor saw his son's forces engaged he joined boat to boat in real earnest and with all his strength also passed over the king of the bulgarians who commanded in person a bold and prudent knight tried by every means at every spot to withstand this fierce attack but all in vain for leo himself unhorsed him and when he would not surrender he was smitten by a thousand blades up to this point the bulgarians had kept a bold front but when they saw their king fallen and all around the growing tempest of war they turned their backs and fled. Rogero, who had seen their discomfiture, and was filled with hatred of Constantine and Leo, on the instant determined to give aid to the Bulgarians. He spurred Frontino, and got in front of the flying horsemen, who were already fleeing from the plain to the mountains, 
and many of them he made to stay their flight and turn against the enemy. Then he put his lance in rest and led the charge on the Greeks. And in the forefront of the Greeks was a knight most richly armed and blazing in red and gold, and he drave his lance through his breast and a span beyond, breaking the armour like glass. Now the youth was a nephew to Constantine, son to his sister, and dear to him as his own son. Then Rogero drew his sword, the fateful Balisarda, and cutting through everything made bloody havoc of the Greeks. And as they saw the blows that none could withstand, they lost heart, and the face of the battle on a sudden was changed, and the Greeks were in flight before the Bulgarians, with broken ranks and not a standard raised against the foe. From a hill nearby, Prince Leo saw his people put to flight, and amazed and sorrow-stricken, he saw numbers falling before a single night, so that by one man his whole army seemed destroyed. And yet, though he mourned his own losses, he could not but praise the gallantry of the single knight. He saw well that the shining golden arms and their strange emblazoning betokened a foreign ally to his enemies and so cruel were the blows he dealt, that to Leo he seemed to be an angel sent from heaven to avenge the untold sins of the Greeks against their god. And being himself a man of great heart and lofty soul, instead of hating the cause of all this ruin to his army, he loved so valorous a knight, and rather than that he should be slain, he would have suffered a sixfold loss in men and put in peril his kingdom. And as a little child, when she has been beaten for a fault and put away by her mother in seeming anger, does not turn for comfort to her sister or her father, but runs back to her mother with open arms, even so Leo, though Rogero had destroyed the first of his squadrons and put to flight the rest, could not hate him, because his valour drew him more to love than his offence drove him into anger. But no such return of love was made by Rogero, who tried on all sides to find the man he hated, and he called on him by name, and bade others point him out, so eager was he in his hatred to kill him. But good fortune and the prudence of the Greek prevented their meeting, and Leo, to save his army from destruction, gave orders to retire on the bridge by which they had crossed, and at the same time sent a messenger to his father, to cross the river by his own bridge, whilst yet there was time. As it was, many of the Greeks were captured, and many were slain from the hill down to the river, and not one would have escaped, but they quickly got beyond the river, and in their haste many fell from the crowded boats and were drowned, and many fled far up the stream in hopes of finding a ford. The battle for that day was now spent, and after the death of their king the Bulgarians would have been utterly destroyed but for the good knight of the white unicorn on the red shield, and they pressed around him with joyful acclamations, and some fell on their knees to him, and some tried to kiss his feet and hands, and happy was the man who saw him, and more fortunate was he who could touch him, for they looked on him as a thing divine, and they prayed their saviour to be their captain and king. But Ruggiero made reply that some day he might be their king or captain as they wished, but for that day he would not take kingly sceptre or marshal's baton, because before Leo could pass the river 
he must pursue him, and that he would not turn back till he had caught him and slain him, for he had journeyed a thousand miles and more for this, and for no other purpose. And without an instant's pause, he turned on the way by which they told him Leo had fled, and with such speed did he ride on Frontino, that he left all others behind, even his faithful squire. But Leo had made good his flight, and had passed the bridge, and broken and burned his boats, and when night fell, Ruggiero lost his way, and rode on through the night vainly searching for some friendly castle or village. At break of day he came to a city called Novengrado, and it seemed good to him to stay in this place for a day to rest his wearied horse. Now the lord of this city, by name Angiardo, was an ally and friend of Constantine, and he had sent him levies of horse and foot. All unwitting, Rogero came into this town and sought out the shelter of an inn. And to the same inn had come a fugitive from the battle, to whom fear had given wings, and who was still shaking with fear. And as soon as he saw the shield and the unicorn, he knew that this was the knight who had defeated the Greeks with so great slaughter, and he ran to the castle and told the lord of the place this great news. Ungiardo was greatly delighted, though he could not understand how the bird, without being driven, should so readily have fallen into the net. Mindful of the report that Rogero had by his own hand routed the Greek army, he waited until he was asleep and could be easily secured. He was made prisoner, and Ungiardo sent in haste a messenger to give the news to Constantine. The emperor had withdrawn his forces from the banks of the Save to a city under the governance of the father of the youth who had been first killed by the knight of the unicorn. And here Constantine was fortifying the walls and strengthening the gates, for he was fearful that under this new leader the Bulgarians might again attack and rout the remnant of his forces. When he heard of the capture, he knew not how to contain himself for joy and he was as assured of victory as if in a duel the right hand of his enemy had been cut off. Not less reason for joy had Leo, for he thought to subdue Belgrade and all the territory of the Bulgarians, and then he designed to make of this new enemy a friend with magnificent gifts and enrol him in his service, and with such a champion on his side he would not envy Charlemagne, his Orlando and Rinaldo. Very different were the thoughts of Theodora, the mother of the dead boy, and she threw herself at the feet of her brother Constantine, and with a flood of tears melted his heart. "'I will not rise,' she said, "'until you promise to let me take vengeance on the slayer of my son now you have him prisoner. He was your nephew, and think how much he loved you, and what he did for your sake and think how wrong it would be not to avenge his death. Not long shall my son be in the underworld without a fitting vengeance. Give the prisoner to me, and let me ease my heart with his punishment. So well she mourned, so well she grieved, and so well she plied her words, and so obstinately did she refuse to rise from her knees, though thrice and four times the emperor bade her rise, that at last he was forced to satisfy her, and he ordered the prisoner to be put in her hand. And in less than a day, 
the knight of the unicorn was given to the cruel Theodora. To have him quartered alive and held up to the scorn of the people seemed to her a little thing in punishment, and she set her mind to think out some unheard-of torment. Meantime, she had him bound hand and foot and thrown into a dark dungeon where never a ray of light could enter. A little mouldy bread was given him, and for two days he was allowed no food at all, and his jailer was a man as cruel as herself and ready to do her will. Meanwhile, King Charles kept in mind his promise to Bradamant that he would give her to no man in marriage unless he should prove his strength and courage in combat with her. And so he made proclamation through all his empire, and soon the challenge was bruited over the world. And the challenge was this, Whosoever desires in marriage, the daughter of Prince Amon, must fight with her from sunrise to sunset, and if he can so long endure this trial unconquered, without more words the lady shall be his, and she will give the choice of arms to the challenger, whosoever he might chance to be. And indeed to her the choice of arms mattered not, for on horse or foot, with lance or sword, she was unsurpassed. Her father could not contend with his king, and after much vain counsel, he took his daughter back to court. And Beatrix, her mother, though much angered, dressed her in splendid attire. But when Bradamant found that Rogero was no longer at the court, no longer did it seem to her the same court that once she thought so beautiful. And as one who has seen a garden in April or May, all decked with leaves and flowers, and comes back to it when the sun has journeyed southwards, and the days are shortened, and he finds his garden drear and wild and darksome, so to the lady seemed the court when Ruggiero had gone away quite other than it had been. So grieved Gradamant because her lover had been taken away, she knew not whither, but how much more would she have sorrowed had she known he was in prison condemned to a cruel death. It came to the ear of Leo, the courteous son of the emperor, how Theodora was ill-using her prisoner, and how she was preparing for him a death of unheard-of torture, and by the will of God it came into his heart how he might save such valour from perishing. The courteous Leo, who so loved this Ruggiero, though he knew not who he was, and was only moved by his superhuman valour, set himself to find some plot or plan by which he might save his hero's life unknown to the cruel Theodora. At last he found out a way. He spoke in secret to the captain of the prison, who himself kept the keys, and he told him how he would like to see the captive knight before he was maimed by his last torments. And at nightfall he took with him a faithful servant, strong and brave, and he made the captain of the prison open to them without letting any other know who they were. And the captain, unattended and in secret, took Leo and his companion to the tower beneath which lay the prisoner awaiting the last penalty. As soon as they reached the tower and the captain of the prison had turned his back on Leo and his companion in order to open the door, without a moment's warning they threw a noose round his neck and strangled him. Then they opened the trap door that gave entrance to Ruggiero's dungeon and Leo, torch in hand, let himself down by the rope ladder. 
he found Ruggiero lying on an iron grating close to the water, tied hand and foot. So noisome was the place that of itself it would have killed the prisoner in less than a month. Leo at once began to loosen the bonds, all the time speaking to Ruggiero words of comfort. Your valour, Sir Knight, has made me your willing slave to all eternity, and I must even choose your good rather than mine own, and put your friendship before my father and all my kinsmen. Know, Sir Knight, that I am Leo, son of Constantine, and I have come here in person to your rescue, at great peril to myself, for my father would never forgive me for the hatred he bears to you for the slaughter of his army at Belgrade. And Rogero made answer, Infinite thanks I owe you, and this life of mine that you now give to me shall be yours to do as you will with, and gladly will I lay it down for your sake. Then they drew Rogero up from the dungeon, and in his place left the dead body of the Castellan, and they escaped unobserved of any. And Leo took Rogero to his own house, and there concealed him for six days until he got back his strength, and in the meanwhile Leo recovered his arms and horse from the hand of Ungiardo. When in the morning the prison was found open and Rogero fled, and the captain of the prison dead in his place, all sorts of rumours spread as to the rescue, but no suspicion ever came near to Leo, for all supposed he was embittered against his captive. And as Ruggiero lay in secret under the careful watch of Leo, his soul was filled with amazement at the sudden change of fortune. He had come a thousand miles to kill Leo, and on a sudden his hatred had given way to love. Day and night he thought of nothing else but how he might make a fitting return for courtesy so magnificent. He longed for some occasion to show to Leo courtesy as great or even greater and the occasion was soon to be found, and Ruggiero to prove the victor in courtesy as in arms. End of chapter 12